the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, is excited to announce that registration has opened for our DICE Reykjavik conference, happening from September 25th to 27th. This three-day event will make the most of the stunning surroundings, offering a relaxing resort atmosphere in which attendees will be treated to insightful speaker programming, roundtable discussions, and networking opportunities. Mark your calendars now to make sure you attend this premier networking event. For more details, go to diceeurope.org. Hi, I'm Austin Wintry, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Today, I talk with the composer Gordy Hab, who has had a pretty spectacular career as the heir apparent to John Williams. He has written, uh, by our estimation from this conversation, four times more Star Wars music than John Williams has at this point by scoring just about every major Star Wars game that has been made over the last 10 to 15 year period. And uh, he is just exploding with musical insight and wisdom. We got into a lot of depth about all of it. It was a blast. I actually really felt like I learned quite a few things from our conversation, and I hope you do too. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Gordy Hab, somebody whose last name took me a long time to feel like I was pronouncing correctly. <laughs> you must get a lot of Hob. Yeah, I get Hob more often than I get Hab, honestly, to the point where I've just stopped correcting people. Now I accept either. So I think we're, if you had, if I had not heard you say it, like I was listening to an interview and I had the, one of these private, oh, it's Hab. <laughs> what is the etymology of Hab, actually? It makes me realize I've never asked you that. Yeah, so it's it. Hob is probably what it originally was. And Does that mean it was German? German. Or yeah. Okay. And uh, you know, when my family immigrated from that side of the family immigrated from Germany during like the First World War, it was unpopular to be seen as German, I suppose. So they tried to Americanize the pronunciation. <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's exactly where Wintery comes from. Uh, is it interesting? Because the family was named Weinberger. And uh, they were like, fuck Germany, we're, at, we're done with this shit. Uh, yep. It was 1939 and feeling salty and said uh, they tried to invent what sounded like an American name and, and Wintry was the concoction and has left people confused for the last uh, 90 <laughs> years as a result because they go, what Wintry yeah. is that? And it's what like this rush. Yeah. yeah, I get all these guesses that are basically just a reflection of the person making the guess more than anything because it's, it's not yeah. grounded in anything, but. Um, in any case, thanks for jumping on. Uh, you've had uh, a, a rather excellent uh, year so far. I can't think of yeah. many composers with um, New York Times billboards uh, of their projects. That's a pretty rare coup. That was pretty cool, I'd have to say. Yeah, for real. Uh, so, so congrats on that. Sort of yeah, king, king Star Wars uh, himself with Star Destroyer. Uh, over the shoulder accordingly and you're obligatory. Yep. You yep, gotta have it. Yep. And you're, and well, we can't see, and unless you've changed it is your, you're also rather awesome star Wars rug beneath your feet. Oh <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, right now, yep. Which it, I'm a fan exists. of. Yeah. yeah. 
Sure. Um, so obviously there's a lot to uh, talk about uh, all things uh, Star Wars, but um, I, why don't we just, just kind of be slightly uh, formal almost about it. And, and, and let's, let's go back to the, to the earliest days. Cause I know the exact yeah. moment I, I would love basically tell, tell me the story of what, kind of what led you to all of this, because at some point you'll name the project that became the first time I knew who you were. Yeah, and yeah, I'm very sure. curious how much runway before that there is. Cause you know, the classic phenomenon of everybody always comes out of nowhere yeah, yeah, of course. Everybody but there's else like ten discussion. years prior to that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's where I'm, where I'm curious. Yeah, for sure. So, I well, I mean, I can go way, way back, but I'll start Zygo. when I move take, to LA. Yeah, I want to. So, I want to hear sperm and egg onward. Yeah. All right, there you go. So you know, six years old, saw ET in the theater. Only remembered the music. Forgot all the characters. My parents thought. Let's get him into music. It wasn't that emotionally traumatizing to see that movie at that age. It, it was a little bit, but the, but the, the takeaway for me was I was singing the theme. You know, it's like getting grilled by my parents, like, "What did you think of Elliot's character?" I'm like, "Who?" Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I can sing the melodies. You know, so it was just I just latched on to music pretty quickly, and that kind of like you know was the beginning of me sort of exploring music as something for fun. Eventually, it became something very serious to me. Um, fast forward, I moved to Los Angeles to go to USC for the film scoring program. Well, actually, wait, before – contained within that fast forward is a yes, really okay. crucial juncture because every composer has that moment where they start music lessons of some stripe or another as a kid yeah. and then realize I actually kind of want to write music instead of just become a pianist or a trumpet right, player exactly. or blah, 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 blah. How did that happen for you? Yeah, so, so I mean a couple things – I think factored into this. So the first instrument I ever played was guitar. My dad's a guitar player. He taught me to play. And uh, so I started a rock band and I mean, we sucked, you know, but, but (laughs) we didn't have any songs. So somebody had to write some songs. So my buddy and I in the band decided to start writing songs together. And that was sort of my first, you know, take at, you know, writing music, creating original music. And I just really enjoyed the process of doing that much more than the result (laughs) <laughs> so to speak just the idea just the of like bouncing ideas yeah exactly it's you know, totally like the three chord version of gordy and um it's you know, and so mind-blowing i can't believe i've never actually known that about about your background until this yeah. moment because i think of you as one of the most uh rigorously capable composers from the other side of the tracks like you think of most there's like the john williams types and then the danny elfman types right and what you're describing is that you secretly started in the Danny Elfman world and then kind of like, like under cover of darkness, you kind of ran the border. Uh, Yeah. In a way. Yeah. I mean, it's actually kind of true. Yeah. I I mean, I was like straight up started as a, you know, a a wannabe rock guitarist and uh, songwriter. And you know, that, that kind of, then I started also playing trombone in the, in the middle school band. So, you know, and that was like a thing. And, um, and I actually really enjoyed that as well. So that's like how I learned to read music and, you know, play in an ensemble and kind of understand how music works in a large ensemble setting, that kind of deal. Plus wind ensemble and, uh, always plays like contemporary work and, and totally. they're, yeah. they're not just, they're not just mindlessly kind of plumbing the classical rep as exactly. Uh, yeah. Know, yeah. In fact, I'd never played in an orchestra until I was in college. I mean, we, we had no orchestra to play in 
where I grew up in the small town of Mechanicsville, Virginia. Is um, Mechanicsville sounds like a town that Tim Schaefer would name the town. <laughs> In some, like in a, you know, a, a LucasArts 90s point and click adventure where you need this sort of every town USA kind of vibe. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of was that in many ways. Amazing. You know? uh, I mean, I was born in Richmond, which is a city in Virginia. Most, right. you know, if you know of a city in Virginia, it's probably Richmond. Yeah. Uh, so I was born there, but, you know, probably like eight or nine years old, we moved slightly outside of Richmond to to the lovely town of Mechanicsville. Um, where I found myself, um, you know, not having a ton in common with the, the with the kids around me because <laughs> I was like really into art and music and Mechanicsville. You know, the kids were into like you know farm equipment and you know cars and electrical it, engineering it, and and uh... the the name kind of says it all. I yeah. mean, it really does sum <laughs> up the town. Um, you know, I mean, there was a it's Jason Mraz of all people also grew up in Mechanicsville and we went to high school together. That's, that's like the, the one other like wow, that's music novel. person that sort of like dropped on the scene. Yeah, no. Um, so we're still actually friends. And, um, that's so funny. I never knew that either. Yep. Kind of a weird little background, but, uh, you know, playing in the marching bands and stuff like that, you know, and it was always, it was always out of sort of necessity that I was writing music because, you know, Hey, we'd want to do some, something in the stands at a football game, but, you know, the band director didn't have a arrangement of a song. He's so, and I was really into writing music by that point, you know, it was sort of a thing I was getting into. So he would say, Hey, you want to do an arrangement of X song for us to play on Friday night? And I'd do that and we'd rehearse it once and play it. And I started doing that pretty often. And that led me to want to write, you know, when you're 13 years old, the notion of I'm going to write a symphony is, is so pretentious and absurd, <laughs> but you know, I was 13. So that's, that's what I wanted to do. And I got about, you know, eight minutes worth of that <laughs> written, hey, that's pretty but good. I wrote this piece for like the, for the high school wind ensemble, you know, and, and we got to put it on a concert and, you know, people clapped and, you know, and it, and it <laughs> sounded cool. And like all the other players in the band, they all like enjoyed playing it. And it was like, it was like a moment for me, you know, like, I could, I could get used to this. This is fun. You know, this is a, a abstract way to create art and, um, you know, do something I enjoy and actually get to see it sort of unfold in real time in front of an audience and, you know, get a reaction. Uh, a Would you say reaction. that that was the tipping point that made you take it seriously as a professional ambition? Or yeah. was that the validation that this ambition you already had was plausible? So it was... It's kind of a bit of both. I mean, that was the that was the tipping point that made me consider, oh, I could probably pursue this as as like a, a real hobby or maybe eventual career. Um, I had always thought about the idea of going into music, but I had sort of imagined I would go into some something more on the, the performing side of music. And then the writing thing would always just be this thing that you did because nobody else could do it. So I'd always have like sort of a job. I could be the arranger in the band or whatever. Ah, right. You know, which, you know, trombone players as a as a group tend to be arrangers because right. there's so few gigs for trombones. So we have to do something else in music. Yeah, to make, keep your, make your own. Yeah. So uh, so it's kind of common. And, um, you know, it just kind of made sense for me to, like, you know, try to learn how to write for different sizes of ensembles and that kind of thing. And, like, you know, do the arrangements for the bands I was playing in. But that 
that one concert, that piece that I had written for this wind ensemble and, and like getting to hear it on a concert and getting a response from it. That was, that was the tipping point that was like, maybe I could pursue composing music as my main thing rather than performing it. And, um, cause you know, to be quite honest with you, I had performed many times and I didn't get a response like that from an audience or, right. or from peers around me. It was the composing thing that sort of gave me this this instant sort of feedback. And, uh, you know, that could be for a number of reasons. It could be because I sucked as a performer, which is very likely. <laughs> um, but, you know, but but for sure, for sure, this thing actually kind of succeeded and it was a lot of fun. And so I'm like, well, maybe I should do this. And then I started getting into it. I, wanted to write more things i would ask friends like hey can i write for your little you know brass quintet or whatever and do that or write for little string quartets and and so i just got into doing it and i knew nothing about writing music i was just writing by ear you know i knew enough about reading music so i could actually like write things notate it but so it was all know. driven by instinct you hadn't studied Completely, a degree yeah. or any kind of composition lessons totally yeah i actually didn't really study writing music or do anything like formal for like composition training until I got to college. Right. So everything up to that point was just me kind of figuring it out by ear. Yeah. And, um, you know, honestly, I think that that's like a a really valuable. Oh yeah. Reverse engineering music. You know, Bach, Bach, would take Vivaldi manuscripts and recopy the parts as a way to learn and just to learn it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty time, time honored, uh, way to t- do it and you learn you learn differently than when someone else has curated yeah. what they think the takeaways of you know this style of counterpoint or that way of orchestration blah 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 when someone's already funneling their their interests uh, it's gonna it's gonna bias you but if you're just like oh wow i really like the way you know the violas sound here and it's only because i've fixated on them just by following my nose you know that's exactly gonna just yeah. take you new places it totally does. And, you know, some, sometimes I'd be, I'd do something that probably is completely wrong, but it would result in something that sounded really cool to me. And, you know, a lot of those things ended up into my, in my bag of tricks mm-hmm. over the years and right or wrong, I liked them, you know, so yeah. I kind of held on to some, some concepts that I'd come up with early on. And, you know, and it was in a way like when I actually went to college and I went to a school in Virginia called Virginia Commonwealth University, which is in Richmond where I was born. Um, and it wasn't really until then that I sort of started discovering that there were, it wasn't that I was doing anything wrong. It was that there were easier ways to do the things I was doing or <laughs> more see. effective ways to get the same result, that kind of thing. And, and I found this, um, I, I found like a true mentor in, in this guy that was the, the jazz arranging instructor, instructor at the school, uh, this guy, Doug Richards. And, um, I wasn't studying jazz, but I was really into jazz at the time. And, mm. um, I was actually, I went to college for music education. I mean, I had not even oh, wow. like, considered like doing a composition degree. It was sort of like, you know, everyone would say, well, you could study composition, but when you leave, you have this degree in composition. What are you going to do with it? At least have some kind of like fallback plan. So it was like, okay, I'll focus on composition while I do an ed degree, you know? And, um, and it wasn't until I met this guy, Doug Richards, who was running the jazz program um, where I sort of, feel like I found my little, my Avenue and it was really in like in in jazz performance and jazz composition. And, uh, he kind of took me under his wing and I changed my major to be jazz composition. And that is ultimately what I have as an undergrad degree is a degree in jazz composition. And this guy, he kind of like put me through the ringer. He was like one of these old school, tough 
teachers that, mm. you know, I mean, not necessarily like breaking my knuckles with a ruler kind of thing, <laughs> but, but, you know, if, if there's a modern version of that, it's he's like the, the, the Damien Chazelle movie, um, the whiplash, you know, yes, honestly, a- and I'm not lying to you. It is, is well rumored that that character is based on the teacher that is studying with in Virginia. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, uh, that's hilarious. Uh, I've seen I've seen music stands fly across the room. That that these things happened, you know. Uh, and we all loved him, and that was the thing. It was like, yeah, we were. Well, I mean, look, potentially I getting him. abused, but, <laughs> but that, we all respected him so much. I think you know? that film does such a good job at walking the line between. Um, it's not trying to defend his abusive behavior, but it's right. also not trying to say that if you want to try to be truly great, that this isn't going to help push you there. You know, like the, yeah. the film kind of lives in that gray area of, of that middle zone, because, you know, there's no, there's, there's no denying that while there's many ways to try to derive greatness from somebody or help them yeah. achieve it, this is definitely one historically, it's an Avenue, uh, yeah. way, you know, way to do it. Yeah. That's crazy that, that he was, possibly did did um did uh damien chazelle uh come from that area or no this i actually don't know i actually don't know um that's a good question i'd be curious to know like what the origin of that is but in the in the jazz community that that has been discussed many times could this doug richards because anyone that studied with doug richards kind of saw that movie and were like oh shit that's him (laughs) (laughs) you know oh my god i remember being on the other end of that you know I was one time the, the you know the trombone player in that band where he's like, nope, wrong. Play it again. Play it by yourself. Play it over and over. And like, you know, spend the entire rehearsal on like two measures by myself, just like slowly melting into a puddle of tears, while all my friends just yeah. listen to me get you know completely tortured. Now I get but, why you're such an asshole. Uh, <laughs> uh, exactly, so man. Uh, yeah, it's like, so clear. You're so prone to such volatility and like flying off yeah. the handle that now no, I, I get it. it. I get it. Oh You're man, that, that, that gave me like a strong foundation musically, but also like really thick skin, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, I mean, next, you know, which next is valuable. Destination Los Angeles. So, yeah, I mean, certainly perfect. valuable in this business. So, um, no, I mean, I just remember like he, he would do this thing where randomly he would just stop class, pick a person, and set a, a stopwatch. And if you, and, and give you a, a chord quality, say, you know, dominant seventh chords go and you had 20 seconds to re- to recite the names of all the notes and all the dominant chords around the circle of fifths like c g b flat f a c e flat blah 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 just like rattling it off and uh so like i would as i'm walking to and from school every day in the cadence of my own walking i'd just be reciting the like chord you know chord tones of every possible chord quality you know like just kind of building this stuff into my head so you know because i wouldn't want to be embarrassed in class you know i know i and- shouldn't romanticize what that <laughs> kind of grilling does to somebody but i i i you know it, it's it's i mean you know how i feel about your writing i i like to not be shy about about it and and that and especially in the in the you know we'll we'll get we'll get to the present day soon enough but but just there's a real difference between somebody who has sat in front of a sequencer and gotten pretty competent at writing orchestral music based around the feedback they get from sample libraries versus somebody that seems to have that deeper kind of genetic 
relationship with it. There's a real, you can just yeah. feel the difference in the handling of, of all the rudimentary elements, the, the, the voice leading, the, 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 the voice leading and the voicing sort of horizontal and vertical, both are okay. real good tipping points. And, and it's pretty hard to get that confident in one's technique without some version it doesn't have to be overtly sort of hostile but <laughs> right yeah but but you know just it really does actually explain in a way that i hadn't appreciated until this conversation how you have such confident control over these elements because you had to live in the music deeply this wasn't just oh thursdays yeah. at two o'clock we're doing this it was like it, it really no, does sound like that whiplash you know like you have to break up with your girlfriend because you need all the time possible you know kind of thing it, yeah i mean it was i mean it, in a way it was it was like that you know I, I devoted well i also went to undergrad for 6 years so you know but that's a different story that that was because wow. i wanted to take a bunch of classes that had nothing to do with my major like scuba diving and tennis you know oh, I, was, yeah. I, I was having a lot of fun with the fact that i had a scholarship so it was um you know <laughs> kind of nice i, I took House the long money. scenic route yeah. if you will but I, uh, but you know, so I had, I had, you know, I guess two years of like working with this guy in a classroom setting. And then because he sort of latched onto me as much as I latched onto him and he took me under his wing and became a mentor. And I studied with him privately for another four years after that. And we became Incredible. like extremely close. Like I still consider him like, you know, my strongest mentor and one of my closest friends. So, Hey, if you're listening, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to talk shit, baby. You know, it's all good. <laughs> Although I don't think he has a computer, so he's probably not listening. Um, but um, it, all this stuff, man, it really it worked for me. I don't know if it works for everyone, but like that that sort of that hard ass, you know, mentor, you know, mentality kind of it, it clicked for me at the time when I was. I was young and, and sort of still like, you know, malleable and, mm. you know, could have gone off of multiple paths. And I really wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And, you know, I knew I wanted it to be music and I wanted to write music. I didn't know what style of music or, you know. And so what ultimately kind of came from that is that none of that even mattered if you learn the fundamentals of, of writing music and how music works and how the instruments work and what they're capable of and how voice leading works and how it can, you know, change the effect of something musically or, you know, what rules to break in order to get an effect, you know, it's like mm. knowing the rules in order to break the rules kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I just got really into it and I, I took all of his advice very, you know, to heart and really just studied and practiced and, you know, got sort of good at my craft and, um, you know, at that point, like after I finished undergrad, it was, it was really a matter of, of, you know, where do I go from here? If I really want to pursue like an actual career where I make, a, make money writing music. Cause like, you know, there were a couple options for someone in, you know, who's a comp composing student. It's like, you could go teach it. You could, you could be, you know, some, I mean, Hey, if you're independently wealthy, then freaking awesome you know go write your your concert music and you don't okay. have to worry about how you make a living that wasn't my case you know so it was, it was either like find a patron or find an industry where they actually pay people to write music and that at that time to me was film right and um and it it all kind of tied in because like the original thing that made me really love music in the first place was actually the first time i experienced music in a film that's the first time in my life i can recall noticing music in sort of that visceral way that really just like, you know, dug into my soul. I mean, I, I loved pop music and I can remember like, you know, the day that 
Thriller came out and I waited in line to buy my copy of that album with my parents. And that was impactful, you know, but I loved that music because it was fun, but it it didn't have like this. It didn't make me cry. You know what I mean? But, but E.T. did. and, And it was something about the music that was making that happen. And so I just had this, this fascination, like all my life with, with the emotional impact of music. And, you know, that seemed to be like very prevalent in film. So it just seemed fitting that I go into film. So I made the exact opposite choice and decided to go to Manhattan school of music for grad school. Um, at which point I had a a teacher there who said, um, Hey, I think if you really want to do this, you should look at USC because they have this film scoring program. It's a one year thing. And before I even started at Manhattan school, I stopped in my tracks, applied for that program, was accepted, and then moved to LA like six months later. So does that mean you, did you go to the uh, MS For half of one semester. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I got halfway through a semester before I was like, you know what? You're right. This is the wrong path. I think, did did Elliot Goldenthal go there? That sounds familiar. I feel like he's among their kind of noteworthy alumni, but I I could be making that Yeah, that that probably makes sense. And I was like more, I was definitely more in the jazz program, you know, so I didn't really dabble much in the classical side of things. But, you know, I also figured out pretty quickly that, you know, writing jazz for a living was like, (laughs) was an exercise in torture. So, um, you know, the film thing just was looking prettier and prettier. It's amazing um, how in a world where it's really difficult to earn a living as a concert music composer, somehow jazz composing is like, hold my beer. You don't, <laughs> you don't even know how hard it can be. You know I mean? In a way it's true. I mean, jazz musicians tend to understand music on, on such a deep theoretical level. You know I mean? Oh, Obviously yeah. like we study classical theory and that kind of thing, but then when you get into jazz theory, it's like, it's basically the evolution of classical music theory. You know, oh, hundred percent. The way music functions, the way chords and harmony function, it's just even deeper in jazz in a way, um, similar but deeper in like the conventional. It's sort of almost know. like the difference between Newtonian physics versus relativistic physics, where where classical theory, like and functional harmony, which is essentially all classical theory really boils yeah, down to, is exactly is a it, it's it, it's a very kind of narrow but effective view it it it's sort of for what it is doing it will it will answer all the questions but yeah. quantum mechanics and and sort of relativity say but there's there's actually quite a lot more going on especially at the edges where things are at their craziest and that's where yeah, sort of jazz to me would be a would be a good corollary because you it's sort of like it can analyze relationships anywhere uh, of any sort uh, you know, yes. where you realize you can find your place under any circumstance, whereas you can you can have voicings in a that if you try to analyze through a through a uh, a more sort of functional harmony lens, it's just like, I don't know. It's just it's just I added notes. That's all right. I can really say about it through that lens. Right. But when you dig into it, you can see that there is actually a functionality there because it's like, oh, if you if you boil it down to the most simple elements that are happening there, you're like, oh, this is just, you know, minor two dominant five to a one or like, you know, like a four, five, one, you're like, Oh, that's classical, you know, music theory one-on-one. But then when you expand out from it, when you go out to the fringe edge of it and you're like looking at all these like hyper extensions of chords and, you know, like all the colorful notes that are there. And if you, if you look at only those and strip away the foundation of it, somehow they sound sort of like this, this weird nebulous, like washy thing, but they are still related to their core 
you know, functionality. And because of that, they work. And then you can add in like solid voice leading and suddenly it's like, this is functional harmony, but you know, but it sounds so vastly different than what people probably think of as like conventional functional harmony from like classical music, Oh yeah, you know, and, and there is the, you know, sort of invention of jazz in a way. And um, so it trains your ears as well to hear things a lot deeper, I think, you know? Oh yeah. I think it also, classical theory is so vertically oriented. It doesn't have a lot to say about where things are going in the sense of line. Right. And that's right. so important because improvisation is so core to jazz that the idea mm-hmm. of where am I headed and what's the tension and release of yeah. the line itself, that's like, that to me feels, I mean, I didn't formally study jazz, but that has always felt to me at the core of what really defines uh, so much. Of, jazz is not just thick chords. It's actually always right. about the trajectory and, and, and where things are exactly. going. Yeah. So it's always leading ahead. Like it's like a chess match, you know, yeah, where it's right. always like you're, you're seeing five moves ahead, you know, it's like, how do I get from here to there? It's like, there's this, this route that you can take to get there. That's why I love these YouTube videos that, that do um, transcription, they'll upload transcriptions of great soloists. Uh, uh, and, and, and I love where you can really like pause and really kind of go almost note by note analyzing and realize just the 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 level of brain power that's operating in some of these true like best of the best jazz soloists yeah. impro- and, and to be improvising it's why it's so cool to me that someone like Jacob Collier has achieved something borderline pop yeah. culture success because what oh, he Oh I does, agree because it's it's superhuman he, he's, he's superhuman that dude's a a complete freak i mean yeah unbelievable what a talent i mean he hears things. He hears <laughs> things, and he and he leverages them in his work that are simply beyond. They're beyond my own comprehension, and oh, I consider yeah. myself like pretty, you know, knowledgeable knowledgeable about you know harmony and how it functions. And then I see this kid come along, and I'm like, oh my god! Yeah, that's when he did his Moon River, that culminates in a modulation to G half sharp major because he just felt that. <laughs> 50 cents, 50 cents sharp was was the precise color he wanted. And That's, the fact that he modulates into it so elegantly where it doesn't feel yeah. like you've just applied a kind of pitch correction. It, exactly. It, it's so smooth that when you hear it, I didn't catch that he had done it. Uh, you know, I don't have perfect pitch. So when I was listening to it, I just thought, wow, that's so bright. And so I like – what yeah. unbelievable kind of musicianship. And then when I watched his analysis, I thought, holy shit. It's no fascinating, man. That's that's a really cool video, by the way. And it's it's fascinating to me how that works. Because I'm like you, well, I mean, for years I, I said I had perfect pitch. I, I later in, you know, early adulthood realized that what I had was was really strong uh like relative pitch. Right. I don't have perfect pitch. I, I relate pitches to colors I have this like synesthesia thing. Yeah, so right. Like sure. I can just when I see blue, I can hear a B flat kind of thing. But yeah. I always have if you're like sing a a, a C I have to like picture blue, hear the B flat, go up a step. Right. You know what I mean? So I can tell you, I can sing a C to you, but it takes me a split second longer. And then there's some people where it's just like, it's instant. That I think that's the perfect pitch. And that guy is like, man, unbelievable what he's doing. You know? Yeah. That's yeah. a talent, you know? Oh yeah. No, it, it, so and, well, improvisation so it, skills. That's, that's also something I just think is, mind-blowing to me like in in the jazz world the reason that like i went into composition and instead of performing is because improvisers on another level to me that's like it's literally like looking at a a, a very complex chord 
structure, like harmony structure in, in a jazz piece. You see it just written out only as the chords. It's almost like looking at the scaffolding of a building and then on the fly improvising, you know, everything that decorates it into like, you know, whatever, some, you know, modern structure, you know, in real time. That's something I was never very capable of doing. I have to sit and think and overthink and overthink <laughs> again. And then eventually I have some music to listen to. But um, well, I relate to that. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. So six months uh, or what, half a semester or whatever at Manhattan School of Music, you came out to USC, yep. uh, SMP TV program. Mm -hmm. um, and so how did the transition go into actually – uh, landing work uh, because we're now we're getting pretty dangerously close. I suspect to that moment where I heard your name uh, first. Cause I, I, I suspect it was um, not terribly long after. Not after long after process. USC. I would, I would think I'm imagining. So right after USC, I mean, I met a lot of student filmmakers while I was at USC um, who I worked with on, you know, short films and this kind of thing, like most composers do when they first get into it, you try to meet young filmmakers and, mm -hmm. you know, score their projects and for no money and get experience and build up a reel and all these things. But I also, I've always been kind of into like daily exercise of some form. So at that time I was into running and mm -hmm. so it's just out for a jog and I, and I saw this yard sale, um, someone was having like a garage sale or whatever, and they had all this star Wars memorabilia. And I thought to myself, on my way back, I need to stop there as like an Uber Star Wars fan and go see what this guy has, because he might have some toys that I didn't have as a kid that I need to snatch up. And um, so running back home, kind of sweaty, thinking, huh, do I really want to stop here? I'm kind of gross. But no, I need I need to see what the guy's got. So I stopped for just a minute. And the guy that was running the little garage sale was this guy, um, Mark Zickery is his name, but he, he was running this group of filmmakers that would get together once a week on Thursday nights at the IHOP in Hollywood to troubleshoot their independent projects. You know, mm. each person would get a couple minutes to say, this is what I'm working on. These are the, you know, speed bumps I'm running over. And then the group was sort of brainstorming together and help each other out. And he said, come by, come check it out. And so I went and I brought like this old school boom box and a CD of some of my music. And I was like, I took my three minutes and I said, here it is, hit play. That's who I am. And then people started hiring me out of that group. Wow. And, um, Wait, but did yeah, you get any Star Wars stuff from the yard sale? We, I need to know. I No, I didn't buy a thing. Because <laughs> everything you had was like legit, perfect condition. And they were all like selling for like, you know, this little toy was like a thousand dollars or something. Uh, okay, and, so it was not you know, yard sale is not the right I was venue. A, I was a broke composer just out of school. So that's but, so funny. But I did meet a guy that introduced me to it, like a hundred filmmakers all in one, you know. Swipe. Yeah, and talk that, about that was pretty impressive. Yeah. Pretty sort of whatever the really good version career. of stamping on a landmine is. Basically that. Yeah. Yeah. And, amazing. Um, a couple of the people, one one of the directors that I had met there um, was working on this little horror film. It's like a short film. It's kind of a take on the monkey's paw, which is like kind of famous little story has been done a thousand times. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I scored this thing and he showed me this this other film that he had made a year or two before called Ryan versus Dorkman. And it was he and his buddy fighting with lightsabers in like an old, you know, uh, tortilla factory. I mean, they're just in like the regular clothes fighting with lightsabers, but the choreography was so 
fucking awesome. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's amazing. He's like, I'm making a second one. Do you want to score it? And I was like, I 100% would love to score that. That would be like super cool. And this yeah. is like, you know, when YouTube was sort of just kind of a thing. You yeah, know, right. Like early 2000s, something like that. And um, so I did this thing and I did, I did it with a, a good buddy of mine, Kyle Newmaster, who's also a composer. And, you know, because I was like, I was busy on other stuff and I'm like, man, you want to help me out with this thing? It's like six minutes of music. We have like a week to put it together. They're going to, they're, I, I got them to promise to hire an orchestra, you know, just for like two hours. Let's get an orchestra in Capitol records. Where and, are they coming you know, up with the money for that? I mean, the they, films- they, yeah, we, we suggested, I, I told, I told the guy, the director, I was like, um, this guy's name is Mike Scott. And, um, I said, Hey Mike, man, if you, put a video on YouTube, you know, and attach it to your, your first one, because it had had like a million views or something, which is a whole lot back then, like a million yeah. views was like insane. I was like, attach a little video to it saying that you're raising money to, to hire an orchestra to score your second installment of this. And, you know, and put, he did that. He just put his address and people were sending like envelopes with like change. And in really? a week, he raised $35,000. Like in a what? Week. Wow. You, you invented like, Kickstarter before Kickstarter. I kind of invented Kickstarter. <laughs> Holy shit. I, so it was Kyle versus Dorkman 2 that I first came across you because it was one of those of like, wow, this is a pretty legit Star Wars, like, sort of like, you know, stab at that sound, you know, and exactly. at, at that aesthetic. Yeah. And, and it was so committed to, you couldn't not notice it. Um, and, uh, but I, and I knew that you had done a recording for an otherwise humble little um, short film, but I, I didn't know that this part of it, it literally just, just getting mailed. That's <laughs> so damn I mean, it was pretty amazing. We were getting like, I mean, seriously, just straight. Some people were donating like a thousand dollars and then other people were literally sending like 50 cents, you know, in an envelope because they were just fans of the first one, you know, and every single person that sent something got their name in the credit. So it's actually only like a three minute video, but it's, it's six minutes long on YouTube because they have <laughs> the credit crawl is like as long as the actual cent, itself. Uh, donations. Yeah. Anyway, if you sent 50 cents, it was, it was, you were in the credits. So, uh, so it was kind of a cool opportunity for the fans of the first one. And, and, and amazingly they raised enough money to do it. You know, we got like a 60 piece group and Capitol records for a couple hours and 60, you know, 60. Yeah. How the hell did you fit 60 in Capitol? Capital oh, we like- had, we had brass and B and strings and winds. And uh, you were doing the, the sort of half door, the door sort of split. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. Like half open. And then all the percussion, everything else was all sampled. Right, you know? right, right. But, um, no, actually, no, I take that back. The percussion was not sampled. I went over to MB Gordy's studio and we striped all the percussion and he just did it as a favor. Because wow. we were just he didn't want to get in on that that envelope on that awesome change. money. I was like, I can bring you a couple envelopes of change if you want. He's <laughs> yeah. like, no, man, it's good. Just hire me on something big later. You know, and that's um, funny. And that's that was my first Star Wars anything, you know. And, um, and what year would that have been then? Uh, what, what's our? Uh, I think it was like two, man, two thousand five, maybe. It feels about right, somewhere around two thousand five. Is my guess. Um, wow. Yeah, because it was versus Dorkman Two. It's easy to find on there. It's still on YouTube. You know. Because um, yeah, but, I remember. I remember it going kind of you know sort of predictably going viral with their because they they'd also done proper VFX of the lightsabers and stuff, and it was yep. it was pretty legit. For a fan film, but I also remember um, being part of or going to—I don't remember actually if I was 
my music was on the show or not, but I remember going to a Golden State Pops ah, uh, yeah. concert where they, right. played, they actually performed that. Played it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, man, I had completely forgotten about that. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Crazy uh, enough, Steve Fox just we just had a conversation about 10 minutes before we jumped on this call. And that's the first time we even thought about that orchestra in like years. So oh, that's, that's so really funny. Yeah, no, I, they, I, I always loved that. They were always such champions of not just playing film music, but, but cultivating kind of unexpected choices. And that's yeah, a perfect example totally. of one where there's not a lot of concert halls where you can go watch a full orchestra, put on a show that's going to include Ryan versus Dorkman <laughs> too. You know what I mean? It, uh, not only does that never happen, it has not happened since. So, right. but, um, but it was pretty cool. And it was really fun. And, and like you, you know, that was the first time you probably heard anything that I had written. Uh, but yeah. also it caught the attention of some folks at LucasArts and they were making a Indiana Jones video game at the time, like right around 2005, 2006. And uh, they were looking for a composer and a friend of mine from USC, Jesse Harlan, we went to USC program together, was working there as well. And he said, man, somebody from, you know, the audio department just sent me this video. Is this you? And I'm like, yeah, that's me. He's like, oh my God, we're trying to find a guy for, you know, for this Indiana Jones thing, but it's not working out. Would you be willing to uh, let me use this as a demo. Uh, and so he sent it to all the powers that be and everyone liked it. And that's how I ended up getting hired for my first video game score was because of this Ryan versus Dorkman thing. And, um, and subsequent and that, to that also, didn't Jesse, wasn't there a period of time where he would also bring you in to orchestrate uh, his stuff that he was doing yeah, for those as yeah. well? Like and for, that, that happened after I had done that game, right? you okay. know, once, once I started to get more you know, of an understanding of scoring games and, you know, Jesse and I were, were still friends, but now we were officially working together in, in that capacity. Right. And um, so, yeah, I actually, because of the Indiana Jones thing is how I landed on Star Wars The Old Republic, which was also right. LucasArts at the time. And, um, and then there was another Star Wars game, Star Wars 1313, which is like the most cursed Star Wars game of all time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been made and, and canceled and made and canceled so many times. I can't I've lost count, honestly. But one of those was a score that Jesse had written and I orchestrated all the music for him. Right. And like went as far as like we, you know, flew to London and recorded it with the London Symphony and I conducted it. It was my first time conducting like a, you know, a symphony of that size i didn't realize that 1313 had been recorded i know that i know that there was a few sort of um died on the vine yeah. I, I remember first assault uh uh mm -hmm. was another one that i think was also fully recorded and produced yep. but i but i um i didn't realize 1313 was musically effectively done or or close yeah to it. it was in the can it just they just pulled the plug on the whole project but the score was well part of the score at least was already recorded probably a couple hours worth you know i'm not sure how much music was going to ultimately end up in the game but we did about two hours of music and and the stuff jesse wrote was like super cool and it, you know it just sits in a warehouse somewhere like i'm picturing like end of raiders know, raiders yeah. like yeah exactly just boxes of scores hidden away yeah but um so it's kind of a shame because it's some pretty cool stuff that he did. Uh, we had fun with that, but yeah, I mean that honestly, that sort of, I mean, doing the old Republic led to me doing uh, actually what would end up happening and I'll, I'll backtrack a bit. So I did old Republic and then shortly after the 1313 thing, which immediately followed that 
um, was canceled, it was because Disney had purchased Star Wars and, and Lucasfilm and the whole like acquisition happened. Yep. And so LucasArts shut their door and that's what put the, that's what closed the lid on 1313. Yeah. Um, and then for about, I'd say, a year it was kind of like you know very unstable ground like oh man i had this great relationship with this this developer this game studio uh, but they were the only game studio i'd worked for and so now i have to like kind of go out there and try to use this as a calling card for you know mm. the games and it was a struggle for about a year um and somehow or another i ended up landing on this this microsoft game it was another star wars game and which made it easy because i had a good star wars demo um for the connect system that had just come out. So I did the star Wars connect game. That was sort of like a little interim interim game that I did. That was star Wars. And then eventually EA sort of acquired the, like a 10 year license, I guess, to do star Wars games. Right. And I had to, in a way, like throw my name in the hat with every other composer that wanted to work on this, on their first game, which was star Wars battlefront. And uh, I was hoping that, you know, my sort of like street cred of having done Star Wars games up to that point would have helped. But it was like, no, they just went right to the, you know, to the very beginning, you know, back to the drawing board and just like took mm. demos from everyone. And I actually did like a blind listening test to choose their composer, which I thought was kind of fascinating. And, uh, and they had narrowed it down to a few and, and I was one of them. And, um, and I remember Steve Schnur calling me who's the head of music at EA. Um, he calls me up and I've never met him, never, certainly never received a call from him. I knew who he was. Uh, and he said, uh, you don't know me, but I just got back from Sweden. I'm at the airport right now. I met with the studio there. They want to hire you for this Star Wars game. I don't think that you wrote the music that they say you wrote. Uh, we need to meet. <laughs> Oh man, that's so that's so very him. Uh, it is totally, and I can say this in complete confidence because he'll tell the exact same story. He loves telling the story, and uh, so literally, like he landed from Sweden where he had gone to convince them to to um, to hire Bill Ross, but they were really keen on hiring me because they wanted someone that understood games and they liked the music I had sent over. And um, and for he, our any listener unfamiliar, Bill Ross is like a close collaborator with John Williams, you know, yeah. somebody who you can't, you can't really get closer without just hiring John Williams, basically. Spare. Yeah. Yeah. Bill's amazing. And, um, but you know, in this case, I got kind of lucky, I guess. And, uh, you know, Steve hops off this plane, calls me up and says, can you meet me at the coffee bean in one hour? I'll be there in one hour. Meet me there. You know, so I you know, hop in my car and drive across town and like, this, this could be an opportunity. And I meet with this guy and um, we just we just hit it off instantly. We spent like three hours and, and it never even really came up what the music for this thing, the needs of the game were. We never really How much did you know about, about the game. Obviously, a lot of times we're really kept in the dark, um, uh, especially I would think for something this, um, you know, the, a, a new Star Wars game under the new regime. Like you must have been held at yeah. arm's length for quite a while. Very much so. In fact, like even... After that whole meet and greet and him sort of validating and, and, you know, verifying that I was the person that said I was and that I had written the music I had sent them. And, you know, and we had this really great, you know, time. We, we got to be friends pretty quickly. Uh, even then, I wasn't flat out hired. <laughs> I still got kind of got put through the ringer a little bit. He, he 
essentially decided let's hire Gordy to write 10 minutes of music as sort of a test. So basically like a, a, a paid 10 minute spec, right? You know, we, here's, here's some music from the game that we want to use that this, you know, from John Williams that we want to use. We want you to write the B side to this A side of John Williams. And it's the music from Tatooine. We want you to continue the sound of Tatooine for another 10 minutes. Show us what you got. You got a week, you know? And so I spent like a week writing this thing and doing this demo and, you know, putting it all together and recording some parts and, you know, mixing and whatever. And that's ultimately how I ended up getting hired for Battlefront. So uh, somewhere in the middle of all of that, I remember I got called to throw my hat in the ring on a game, um, which was a Walking Dead game. And then I <laughs> later found out that they had hired you. Yeah. Um, and I remember going, huh, the Star Wars guy, because uh, we had never <laughs> met at any point, because that would have been. Before all this, right? That that this was an acquisition. It, it would be um, before Battlefront, right? But after Star Wars Connect, because um, oh my god, I'm going to blank out on the developer's name who made the Walking Dead game. They don't exist anymore. They were based in Austin. yeah. I I, I never um, knew them. I I was dealing with people from Activision who were running right. the composer, you know, referee refereeing that process. Well, it was the same developer that made the Star Wars Connect game so the music director was the same ah, guy that's and, uh, so that's how i ended up getting on that game you know it works yep, um, yeah absolutely so, and so, that, yeah. Man, i had a lot of fun on that game by the way too but which nobody ever heard or probably played yeah it was but, actually one of those where i remember i remember not thinking the game had come out and then i yeah. saw it on your credit sheet at some point later and was like i guess it did come out um yep. and uh, i had fun with that man i did i went to like these my old like bluegrass roots from growing up in Virginia, like dug deep oh, into wow, like awesome. fiddle playing and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun actually. And, you know, I paid some like homage to, to bear score from the series and nice. played around with his themes and bear and I went to school together. We've been friends forever too. So yeah, um, I remember he was yeah. in that same class, right? It was, he was, you yeah. and Jesse, he was in the same yeah. class with Jesse and I. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, something else that I'm curious about that I know is, um, I, I remember, um, wasn't there some crossroad where Chance Thomas? Oh yes, I cannot leave Chance out of this. Yeah, yeah I know I, exactly I, where you're going. I, well, so. I, actually, I couldn't quite remember. I just know that I we had I did one of these with him recently, where I basically just sat there going, "Are you really retiring? Because is that even allowed?" Um, and he was like, I'm done, man. And it was basically just an hour Crazy. and a half of me going, really? <laughs> but, Are you sure? But yeah. he, um, he, um, uh, I always think of him as one of the most kind of graciously supportive and generous of yeah. his colleagues, um, type that, guys. And I thought exactly that before my... I heard your story, which blew my mind as like, okay, that's on a whole other level. So what, what was the story there again? Cause yeah, so this is pre-Steve Schnurr landing and calling me into a meeting and getting hired for Battlefront. There, there was a, a period of time where everyone was submitting their demos to DICE, to Ben Mento was the, the music director at DICE, audio director, and he was taking demos for this Star Wars project. And everyone submitted, myself, you know. For all I know, you submitted. Um, I have no idea, but Chance Thomas Actually, was Actually, funny enough, I can answer that. I remember Kraft Angle calling me and said, EA is looking for composers on a big new Star Wars thing. And I said, let me ask uh, a question. Is, is, are they looking for 
John Williams like extremely faithful or are they right. interested in expanding? Um, Cause I said, to be honest, I don't know that I, I'm that interested in, or even necessarily that I want to potentially put myself out there as even capable of le- as a full on sort of side. I said yeah. that that's a thing that, you know, I given enough time, I, I'd like to believe I have the wherewithal to be able to do that. But but I can appreciate from the jump that that's not a trivial task, and and it's not it's not that appealing of a task for me. So I said, here's the deal. I had it's a just done. Task. Oh you know? yeah, well that's a whole other dimension to it. But I had just finished this game called The Banner Saga, which had big, mm-hmm. very yeah. brassy orchestral, or actually technically it's wind ensemble music. And mm-hmm. I said, tell you what. Send them that, and then we'll never hear from them again. And that's exactly what happened. Because uh, uh, I said, it's not so Williams-esque it. at all. But yeah, they were just soliciting reels to find out who to ask to demo. And I said, they're yeah. not going to ask me to demo because this is nothing like Star Wars music. But at least that way you can sleep at night knowing. Because my agent was like, well, we got to submit. It's Star Wars. And I was like, well, okay, yeah. you submit this, and then we can predict the outcome. Right. <laughs> So, yeah. Well, you know, like like you, we it's so so many of us submitted, and Chance Thomas is one of those people that submitted. But with his submission, he also included an email saying, and I'm kind of summarizing, but this is the bait, the 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 short of it. I would love nothing more than to write the music for Star Wars Battlefront, a legendary series, and and I'm a huge fan of the the music it comes from. But there's this guy, Gordy Hab who does this so well, you really should consider him before you consider anyone else. And another composer submitting for the same project went above and beyond to let the audio director know that I was somebody that should fast forward to the top of the list. And I was because of that fast forwarded to the top of the list. I've confirmed after the fact with, with Ben Mento that that was the reason that he put my demo to the top and listened to it and actually considered me. And so I can't, Imagine many other people doing something like that. That was like it's one not of the, even the many. It's just, it's no one. I mean, it's, nobody does. It that. is. It is. And I don't even think it's because people are naturally so like vampirically selfish that they just refuse to think of somebody else. It's just right. you can't forgive. You, know, you can easily forgive people looking out for number one, so to speak. You know, right. in a competitive yeah. industry, you're you're yeah. living freelance, you know, on some level or another, you're kind of job living job by job or yeah. hopefully not paycheck to paycheck, but but it can get quite close to that pretty easily. And mm-hmm. so to to and and knowing the scope the potential consequences of landing a job like this, to say something like that bespeaks a level of character and and genuineness. Like the idea that he would that he would say from his point of view, I am valuing the quality of the final product above everything else. And this is somebody who I think can deliver that beyond yeah. even myself. And if you care about the final product, that should be the criteria with which you view it. All my personal ambitions aside. And he's not an unambitious guy at all. Oh, I know. So, exactly. I mean, he's like the kind of guy that would go after that job, you know, wholeheartedly and put everything into it to get it, you know? So the fact that he did that is not only just shows you know so much character but it, it's just i don't know i mean that's like one of the coolest things anyone's ever really done for me in this industry in many ways you know because it really did it's one of the coolest thing anyone has done for anyone ever <laughs> I, mean, I mean that's fair man i mean I, I love this guy to the end of time i mean he's, he's he's a sweetheart and he did something that like we say nobody else would ever do and and it really did 
aid in me getting that job. If not, if it wasn't like the, the, the main catalyst that, that got the job, it certainly was a, a big factor. And, it would seem um, to me that it, it, it opened the door. Uh, you had to ultimately show up with the goods to walk through the door, but he kind sure. of wedged it open in a way that, that you might have been very difficult to, or hard pressed to do on your own. Uh, exactly. Exactly. That's it. You know, I mean, it's that whole luck is just opportunity meets preparation kind of thing. But, you know, the luck in my case was was Chance Thomas jumping in there and, and, and saying something so kind like that. How did he know? What what, what was the what, what was the prior relationship? Well, he had heard the music I did for Star Wars Connect and I had submitted it for like a gang award or something like that. And so he was reviewing those and like he came up to me at, at, at GDC one year after that. I'd wrap that score and said, man, I've never heard anyone write Star Wars music like John Williams to the point where I, I actually thought it was John Williams. And man, you really have this thing down. And, uh, you know, I guess it just stuck in his head that I was like the the cat that could do that thing if, if needed. And um, it impressed him, I guess. And, you know, enough so that he was willing to like really stick his neck out like that. That was pretty amazing. Truly, you know. It was. And and you're right in, in many ways you were saying earlier about like the idea of like, do I want to do something where I have to do the B side to John Williams? Is that like the look I'm after? Is that like, you know, the, the hill you want to die on in a sense? Because it's not just that you have to do that thing, which means that you have to put your own aesthetic sort of to the side for a minute. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, of course, try to like bring yourself into it as well. But like, you know, there is at the end of the day, a huge parameter around what you're writing, you know, um, a but parameter also that like a hundred million people are going to have a pain. That's on. it. That's, that's, that's the biggest part. It's like, not only, you know, am I potentially pigeonholing myself, but if I'm successful at this, I'm pigeonholing myself, but at the worst, I'm going to piss off an entire fan base for the biggest film franchise of all time. And how's that going to look, <laughs> you know? So there was a ton of pressure to like deliver what they were asking for, which was like, Hey, we want original music, no themes from John Williams, but we want it to be as though John Williams himself wrote it. So you need to get into his head and figure out how he works and write your own original themes. But you know, it needs to feel like he could have done it. And so for battlefront one, that was, 100% the assignment and, yeah. you know, what I signed up for and what I committed myself to for, you know, a good part of a year, you know, it wasn't until Battlefront 2 where I actually went back to the table and said, hey, now that we've done this thing and it was successful and, you know, the, the score was extremely well received, I would love nothing more than to branch away from trying to be you know, the B-side to John Williams, but let's write an original score for this game that has nothing to do with that. I mean, it still needs to feel Star Wars, but I'd like to do my own thing on this. And that was Battlefront 2. And uh, that's where I really started feeling like I, I took that franchise and sort of stretching it out a little bit, kind of pushing it forward, you know, stamping it a bit more with my own aesthetic. And, you know, not to say the Battlefront 1 was, was not me, because it certainly was. I mean, like that the music of John Williams is like a part of my DNA. Cause like I grew up with it. Like many of us, uh, it's what inspired me to do this thing in the first place. But well, you know. and I also think, you know, it's, it, I think when I look back at my, at my initial, um, it sounds smug to say turning my nose up at the prospect of having my hat in the ring, but I, I just found myself going, um, I, 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 
I, I really loathe the thought of the, the, the only way that this job goes well is to fully be somebody else. And that right. really rubbed me the wrong way. And oh, as time has gone by, I've come to realize that I, I was, I probably, I probably was having a very ego centric reaction. Uh, Cause there's a few things that have come up over the last decade or however long since then that I've, because first off, when I heard what you did, it was because this was a whole other level when I heard it compared to the older public and and like it was just such, it was like it really was just holy shit. This is this isn't just John Williams. It, it's not John Williams emulation. It's John Williams grade. It's it's John Williams caliber, which is such a, a, a narrow and, and, and mind-bogglingly difficult target to hit with any kind of authenticity. But it didn't just sound like John Williams because we had also around that time started to hear new Star Wars music from John Williams. Right. And, and there was a real difference. I, I look, I, 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 like everybody else, I worship the guy. I'm seeing him this weekend at the bowl. I, I, I'm so grateful that, you know, there's a new Indiana Jones out. We still get to hear new John Williams music. I, you know, at 91, he still matters a lot to me, but when you listen to how he was writing in his forties and his fifties versus how he's writing in his eighties and his nineties, there was a, there was a fire in the belly. When you listen to empire strikes back or ET, you're like, this guy was fucking just going going for for it, it, man. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, when I heard the battlefront, I said, this isn't John Williams in some abstract sense. This is like John Williams when he was, like in the eighties, you know, when he was really going nuts. And then I had that voice in my head at some point that reminded me, if you ask John Williams about his style, he points to close encounters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he says like, Star Wars isn't really my thing. And I realized a lot of this, a lot of this is probably, I need to be a little bit more sort of Zen and and sort of Buddhist about all this, I think. Um, And, um, because there's also just the the bigger not that I not that I'm uh, not that this is a confessional of regret or anything because what like I said when I heard when I heard what you did I thought oh I, I couldn't have done that this 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 found the right person uh, like it, it, it you know and I've only that's only been reaffirmed you know I felt that way all the more strongly when playing Fallen Order because um, it was like fuck man this is really this I like this better than quite a lot of a lot of Star Wars music. Um, <laughs> And, uh, uh, so yeah, anyway, it was, it was, I, I dismissed it as, oh, you just have to go copy somebody else. And that's right. also really hard. And, yeah. and, and like, I, I really overlooked a lot of virtue, um, and also what it says about being able to actually do that is a tremendous compliment. And so, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, like when I approached it, you mean, I, Battlefront in particular, because I knew it was a solo act, you know, on, on Old Republic, there was a team of composers and right. and we had like, it was, it was set in a different time period in the Star Wars universe. So we could get away with things being a little, not quite like the original scores. And, but this was, this was like, you know, Battlefront was meant to be like, you open up that shoebox in your attic and there's all your Star Wars toys from the seventies and, right. you know, and you're playing with those things. So it needed to fit with that same aesthetic, but you know, I, I saw sort of two options. It's like I could either I can either do like pastiche and do imitation of John Williams or I can do me, but do it through the lens of like all that music that I love of his. And, yeah. just, you know, so essentially what I ended up doing was like I need to in some weird way become John Williams 
for yeah. this project. I mean, I don't want to do it. a sound alike. I don't want people to be like, oh, I can listen to that, you know, piece of music. And I can tell that you were listening to this piece of music when you wrote it. I didn't want that. I wanted to boil all of Star Wars down, absorb it, and then put it away and never look at it again and just write a score, which is exactly what I did. Like, I never looked at a score of his during the entire time I was scoring it. Um, I never listened to Star Wars music while I was working on it. I felt that that would be like, a. I felt that I'd be like very tempted to be like, oh, I just want to do one like that. I like that. Yeah, it's like little bump, little kind of tips of the hat to this riff or that little And if you do that, it's kind of like, well, why do that when that that already exists and the original is always going to be better? So, you know, why would I want to do an imitation? You you said it so so brilliantly that I never really thought of it, that all these scores and with with all respect to the various folks who've tried to do this uh, over the years for various projects, um, it it never really it always felt like someone trying to emulate John Williams as opposed to becoming John Williams. Uh, And I think that it it, it might sound just kind of like fluffy kind of platitude language, but I think there's a real, I think there is something to that as to why your stuff's just so much more successfully just embodied it without, yeah, I, I had never really appreciated that until this moment that you're not actually, um, sort of cribbing moments in order to remind us that it's star right. Wars. Uh, exactly. which even he has fallen into like, like the new Indiana Jones no, straight course, up man. quoting the, the tank cue from, from uh, last crusade yeah. or whatever, right in the middle of the thing where I kind of thought, okay, I get it that through this, you know, as an audience member, I'm supposed to go, oh, okay, I remember that. Or I feel that feels familiar or whatever. But I, I thought yep. he doesn't, who's he trying to prove, you know, th- like th- he must, have been, he must've been talked into that because. Yep. I'm sure that's a big part of it, you know. I mean, I heard like little elements of like War of the Worlds in there sometimes too. Like, and when I saw it last weekend, it's like, oh yeah, he's he's pulling from his little bag of tricks. Yeah, you know? oh yeah, the tin. I mean, it's always still brilliant, but you know, there, he's there, definitely he, digging into his bag. There was yeah, there was a there was an almost Horner level lift of the tin tin fencing bit uh, uh, in in Indiana Jones as well that I thought, and yeah. it's one of those where I can hardly complain because I'm just thrilled he's alive and writing music. Like I just. I'm like he can do whatever the fuck he wants, you know. I I will I will I will I will be thrilled. I will weep tears of joy, um, but I do notice. <laughs> uh, can't help yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, it's hard not to notice. I picked up on a couple of those things. I mean, you know, look, it was this. It was like I I saw two roads and 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 then a potential middle path. It's like either I go here where I do imitation of john williams you know to the point where you can like pinpoint like oh i see what you're doing there that's just that cue but you kind of re did this you change the melody use the same chords whatever that kind of thing that would have resulted in an audience absolutely destroying me for just being a rip-off artist you know or i go completely original i do gordy's take on this thing and i ignore everything that john williams has done up to a certain point i do that i get destroyed so the only answer is to find some sort of middle path. And the middle path to me was to not imitate, but become you yeah. know, the sound of star Wars. And, and I, I remember doing a talk on it at like a GDC or something like that after battlefront one to come out talking about my process. And, and I sort of equated it to, you know, it's like 
I had two options. I could do a paint by numbers. You know what I mean? Here's a Star Wars paint by numbers right. thing. And, you, you know, you fill in that Coloring every blue. time you see, you know, like A, you put in blue or whatever. Or B flat is I could, blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. B flat is always blue. Um, or I could say, why don't I just use the same palette of colors yep. that John Williams used? Completely blank canvas is my own canvas, is my own artwork. I'm just using the same color palette as he, he would use. And that's that was the... That was the comparison I made, and that was the choice I, I, I chose, and I think it it ultimately worked out because that, you know, the, the response was positive from the fan base. You know, I mean, like you occasionally get someone that's like, "Oh, I can see it, it, that sounds just like that," and if you go listen, it's like nothing like it at all. I mean, I think you I know, mean, people hear something and they just imagine it's like something else because it's Star Wars, but yeah, you know, no, I think it, I think um, I think I think that that's that's a perfect way to approach it, and it's worth highlighting that using that palette is deeper than just what one might assume you mean by that. Like, Oh, it's, it's, it's the orchestra configured this way or whatever, right. because it's, it's, it's a deeper, it's a sensibility where one can just intuit, you know, the phrase reaches its end in a certain way. And the harmonies have these kinds of voicings typically like yep. he, he has his bag of tricks, but it's not just, the trick on the surface level it's 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 how he's thinking about line and tension yeah. and release and all of that and that's the stuff that became your palette i know that you obviously know this i'm 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 just saying it for the sake of our listeners that it's yes, it's tempting totally. to it's tempting to assume when you say color palette that it means like the orchestration he used but trumpets think, so i want to yeah. use trumpets or yeah. no it's not like that at all it's, it's like, like a philosophical palette uh, exactly right yeah, yeah. I think that, and and boy, did you! I know, I know it sounds like I'm just sort of frothing <laughs> at the mouth, sort of just bending over backwards. But I, I'm really just in such awe, especially considering. I remember at some point you said that you've written considerably more Star Wars music than John Williams has at this point. That, that is 100 percent the fact. Now, and there were times where I was like, I think I'm pretty close, but now I mean, I think I'm somewhere in the range of like 80 hours yeah. <laughs> music right for star wars <laughs> you know insane. all of it like and all like recorded you know with the full orchestra and the whole deal so it's like it's that's that's it's pretty vast you know it's, i mean it's kind of an honor to get to have done that i mean that's pretty cool to think i mean he but, talks about how you know having scored nine films and 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 you know couple little in, like the obi-wan theme and a few other little ancillary yeah. bits they'll so that gets you them. about maybe 18 to 20 hours worth of yeah i was gonna say 20 <laughs> 20 if you kind of generously round up and assume that certain yeah. there's that we know there were things that were recorded and then ultimately not used and that sort of thing yeah yeah exactly, that's yeah. that's a, that's a quarter of of uh of what we're crazy to think about, about. I mean, it's, yeah it, and yeah. of course quantity over quality is not not exactly what i was after either but you know so like i, I tried to make sure every every single minute of those what 80 whatever hours were up to the fan base standards because i'm a member of that fan base so i always was writing to you know at a certain point i had to like figure out how i was going to cope with the that fan pressure yeah while i'm working on this because it's, it's pretty overwhelming to think that if I went this way, like I was talking about before, or this way, I, I basically get completely killed and could, could ruin my career. Yeah. Or I have to find this path. And the path for me was, well, I just need to, who are the fans? Who am I writing for? Well, I'm a fan. So what would I want to hear? Right. I wouldn't want to hear rehashing of old John Williams stuff. Right. I'd want to hear new music. But if it didn't fit Star Wars, I'd be disappointed too. So I had to find the thing that I felt I personally, as a fan, would want to hear and focus on that. 
And uh, so that was like sort of my, that's how I coped with, with the fear of the, you know, that vast fan base that was sort of like looming over, you know, always, you know, not to even mention the, you know, the Lucasfilms and the Disney's. And so, okay, actually, that's a, that, okay. That was exactly. So I was waiting um, to, to mention that I remember us doing a panel at some point together and you mentioned that at least in the early days, you had to send all these cute, like, obviously there's going to be a boatload of approvals from all the various executives course, and yeah. publisher people and Lucas and brand people like IP steward type people. But John Williams himself had to approve or listen to your cues, yep. at, at least in the early days, right? Like In the early days for Battlefront 1, that was the case. So for Battlefront 1, everything first gets approved by DICE, you know, the de- developing company making the game. And then it would be sent to Lucasfilm. And uh, we had a six-week approval process where Lucasfilm would have, or Lucas, Lucasfilm, games. it wasn't Lucasfilm Games at the time, but it was just oh, Lucasfilm's right. music department. So they would listen for two weeks. If they signed off, it would go over to Disney's music department. They'd have two weeks. And then the final two weeks, it would go to John Williams. And he'd have two weeks to listen and sign off on things. And so it was like always, everything had to be done six weeks in advance of anything because it's such a long approval process. And if at any point along that, that chain, you know, somebody had notes, it would get kicked back and the whole process would start again. So it was, um, it's a lot of oversight, you know, I mean, I won over ultimately like after a while, after like kind of nailing a few cues and, and making everyone happy, sort of figured out what, what was working for everyone. Right. It got a lot easier as I went. You Did know. you ever get feedback back from Williams that like just actually just twice, only two times. And and one of the times was simply because I was it, it was a moment where it if I did not use the force theme, it would have been wrong for for what it was for. So I folded in his force theme into something that I'd already written. You know, it's my music, but like kind of like wove it in there, like almost like a counterline. And uh, his his thought was that that's just not a counterline melody. That melody even needs to be featured or not in there. And that seemed fair. Yeah, so, I mean, it's probably the most well-known melody. It's, I guess, a toss-up between that and the Imperial March, which is the most <laughs> famous thing he's ever written. Exactly. So I can appreciate uh, um, the kind of tell Mr. DeMille I'm ready for my close-up attitude yeah, yeah. about it. Exactly. And and it totally made sense. And, and, and I got that. It's like, yeah, that that is a featured melody. Let's, let's not, you know, give it a back seat. And so I, you know, altered that. And then there was another time where actually, you know, just thinking forward here, this was for an expansion for battlefront one, where we did the force awakens material. Cause the force awakens came out right shortly after battlefront one released. And then we did some, some DLC content. And right. part of it was like some of the characters from uh, force awakens and, and, um, and I had written some music and um, got notes back from Lucas saying that, well, the sound of The Force Awakens is, is a bit different than the original scores of Star Wars. It needs to fit that more. But it, it was, the movie wasn't out. It was still six months out before the film would come out. So I'm like, well, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to fit alongside a score that I'm not allowed to hear because right. it's still you know, either being written or certainly they're not going to share it with me. Um, and so... I, I I found a way to kind of get get it over the finish line, regardless. But on Battlefront Two, that was a big talking point before I started that project. I said, if 
I'm going to do any expansions that are based on films that have not come out yet. Like for example, Rogue One, um, I would like a chance to at least hear the music that you're trying to have me fit alongside of. So, so with Rogue One, I actually like ended up getting like a little private screening of the film, like about eight months before it came out and, and got to hear a bit of the original score, which is not Giacchino's score. It was, uh, Alexander Spot score. Oh, I didn't realize that it had ever made it to a point of. Yeah, like, I mean, it was being... it was in there as like as temp, at very early stages. Must have been. Know. It must have been completely different. So different, yeah, so different, you know. And and ultimately, like that sound wouldn't have worked for what I was doing, so we, we ended up kind of abandoning that sound, and it just kind of did. So did they? <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> exactly. So, but it was kind of interesting because, like, for a while, they were saying we needed to sound just like Blob, but you're not allowed to hear blah. Right. So, you know, we have to fix that if we're going to do it that way. Um, which yeah, kind of led to a lot of creative decisions on, on battlefront two, where it was like, you know what, let's do we really need, like we've sort of proven that we can, we can do nostalgia here. Why don't we stretch out a little bit and, you know, do like a whole bunch of original new themes. We had, we had a story, Mm-hmm. Uh, mode in, in that game. There was like a campaign yep. uh, focused on an original character that was, you know, now part of canon, but like at the time, I mean, it was just in the game. And so it, that was an opportunity to essentially like write Gordy's version of yeah. Star Wars in a way. And that's, that's what I did. And, you know, that sort of like laid the groundwork for a lot of like the sound that I had kind of developed for myself in that franchise that I expanded most upon in the Jedi series. So Fallen Order is certainly like my furthest diversion from the John Williams sound and then, you know, Survivor even more so. Yeah. You know, like oh, I really absolutely you know, went a lot of Steven and I, uh, my composing partner on that, we, we decided from the very beginning that, you know, John Williams was not necessarily going to be our, our main influence for this score. Um, you know, because there's so many composers contributing to Star Wars at this point yeah. that it kind of gives us the, you know, sort of the freedom to kind of like put our own stamp on it. So where do we take this? It's like, well, let's, let's listen to, let, let's go back to the original thing that inspired John Williams rather than going to John Williams. So, I mean, he was, he was listening to, you know, romantic era, you know, classical repertoire and like, you know, neo romantic stuff. And, you know, so instead of like trying to do, John Williams, what we did is just we dug into those uh, like sources and, and, you know, those that inspiration and like use that more as like our foundation, but put it through like sort of a modern spin mm. by like in- the inclusion of a lot of, you know, electroacoustic processing and, and addition of like synths and, and getting Alan Ryerson to mix it. And, you know, yeah, you know, and just we kind of went nuts with it. So. It's quite a bit of fun. Um, something else uh, along the lines of having to get the approvals of Williams, um, and 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 how how um, I, th- that whole thing is fascinating to me because I just think he's probably really not. He would be listening to mockups, and yeah. he's probably not very accustomed to listening to mockups. You know, he doesn't live in our world. He kind of lives in the clouds. You know, I, uh, and. He's not, he's not Mr. Technology. And right. so exactly. Yeah, exactly. mock-ups to him are just going to sound like shitty, uh, like no matter, it could be the best mock-up in the world and mock-ups it wouldn't also, it, w- it wouldn't matter. And on top of that, m- sample libraries are so catered 
to essentially the opposite aesthetic of him. Exactly. He's so yeah. built for like that trailer wall of sound, remote control yep. kind of exactly. vibe that the mock-ups must have been a little a little dodgy. Pretty uh, janky. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, hands off to uh, uh, Sam Smythe, who's been working on my team forever. And, and for the Battlefront scores, he did all the mock-ups. I mean, I wrote everything by hand. That was going to be actually the next thing I went to is 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 in the in that same vein you had mentioned you you wanted to kind of duplicate the process and I think that's so yeah. um, that's so awesome but what a what an undertaking to then say I'm going to write by hand have to hand it off to somebody to reconstruct yep from a yep. mockup I mean what a labor intensive process it really was I mean it, it was a very labor intensive process that that is not completely repeatable on on projects moving forward but for Battlefront it made sense because I had to. I had to become John Williams, as, as I was saying. So how would John Williams do this thing then? He would he would sit at the piano and he'd write it on, on you know, a, a nine-stave sketch. And so that's actually how I wrote the entire score. And so I would scan that and send it to Sam and he'd do mock-ups from that. And that's what we would get approved. And once that was approved, I could take his mock-ups and export the MIDI into in the notation and orchestrate from there. You know, it was almost like, you know, when, when we were negotiating, like, you know, deal points in the in the contract for battlefront and like you know budget lines there was a line for uh for orchestration and i said you know rather than us hiring an orchestrator i'd rather hire myself as the orchestrator and take a a, a large percentage of that orchestration budget and put it into hiring someone to like full-time do mock-ups for me so that i can write the way john williams would write yeah. And uh, and ultimately, I think that was like sort of the recipe that that made it successful, because I don't think I could have written a score like that writing straight to sequencer because it would be so maddening to hear how terrible it was that I would probably make decisions to try to make it sound better. Yeah, that's if, the thing you know. that that, you know, that's that's also probably part of why when I heard it, it felt. It felt on another level, it's not just the. I'm a believer that a composer, it's coming from within. So it shouldn't matter what your tool is. It shouldn't matter whether totally. it's pen and paper, yeah. but you're not wrong that there is a certain feedback loop of you hear the sample struggling to, to make the French horns do that. So you give it to something else because you're right. like, well, it's got to get approved and whatever. And like we make these little negotiations even unconsciously all the time. And those things would have even if it was the equivalent of periodic little pinpricks, it would have been death by a thousand cuts that it would have aggregated into a thing that wouldn't have had that level of authenticity. And I hadn't really, I knew you wrote it by hand when I always thought that was awesome, but I hadn't actually appreciated the psychological impact of the, of the, of the act of making the mock-up uh, on interfering with that process. Uh, and I think that's, uh, I think you were, did, was that, how did you arrive at this proposal? I mean, that, that's not an intuitive thing in a video game hiring discussion to go, I'd like to write by hand. Yeah, yeah, I know, exactly. I mean, honestly, because when I did that little 10-minute spec, um, I did kind of everything. So, I, you know, I would I would like, I'd, I'd sketch a little bit by hand, then I'd go straight into notation, then I'd export that and build the mock-up from that. And, and, the, and I would spend like maybe two hours writing a little, snippet of music and another eight hours trying to make it sound good with samples. Right. And I just thought to myself, man, if I do this job and it's like, you know, four or five hours of music, I'm going to be here until, you know, like 2030 trying to write the score. If, if, yeah. if I'm doing it like this, it's just going to take forever. So what made and, you um, then, d instead of rejecting the right by hand 
which would have been most people's instinct in that to go, well, I guess this is not gonna be practical. Yeah. What, what gave you the kind of courage to do the opposite? So, uh, Sam, who works with me, um, I gave him sort of in that moment, I kind of gave him a test case. So I was like, here is a sketch, do a mock-up. I want to see how quickly you get it done. And he had it done like something that would have taken me the whole day. It was done like, you know, in a couple hours and it was convincing enough for me to understand that the music was going to work. It didn't sound like what I wanted it to sound like because it's very difficult to mock up that type of music. Actually, it's really, it's, it's impossible really. To, to mock up like truly symphonic music with samples because the samples just don't do that thing. Well, they're not designed to do that. Um, it's like you said, they're designed for like this big wall of sound, you know, what the current trend in like sort of, you know, Hollywood movies is. Well, and also um, the samples do well with generally speaking, fast attacks and yeah. quick decays, you know, right. so exactly. yeah. works great, yeah. piano works great. Spiccato mm -hmm. strings work great. Anything that's a little bite-sized Lego block of sound uh, will work well. And that's like the opposite of John Williams, which is this yeah. florid, expressive, everything connects. There's never any of this blockiness. And, exactly. and yeah. so it's sort of like cursed from the mock-up standpoint. You know, and, and I think because, because, Sam was a bit detached from the, like my creative process of having written it, that he was able just to get a mock-up out and not worry about every little detail. I mean, of course he does worry about the sure as good as possible, but like for me, I would, I would just sit there and manipulate the thing to death because it wasn't sounding like what I wanted it to sound like. And so I think sort of detaching myself from that process or, and him being sort of detached from my creative side process made it so that he could just do it fast I would give everything one listen. And in most cases I would kind of cringe, but I'd just send it, you know, it's like as a mock-up stands, it's, it's very good for what it was. You know what I mean? But like, I, I knew that, I, you know, I, I, that could never be the end product, you, you know what right. I mean? So, but, but I was able just to sort of separate myself from it and be like, well, this is just sort of a, you know, it's exactly what it, it says it is as a mock-up, you know, right. it's, it, it's a, you know, it's a model of what is to be, you know, it's a sketch. It's like a line drawing of a painting, you know? So yeah. as long as it was enough to, to get everyone to sign off on it, then it was going to work perfectly for my process. So, but if I had done them myself, I feel like I would have just like man manipulated them to death until it got to the point where it sounded like what I was after. And I would have wasted so much time doing that for just something that you ultimately throw away at the end I of the know, day. I've, we were I've, recording everything. That's so. the thing. I, I, I've always had a similar relationship with samples where I, if I can't later record it, I don't really like to use it. And so totally. it's, yeah. it, so I, the result is that my mockups have never sounded as good as most other people's because they've never had to, in, they've never had to replace something. Like right. I've just, I've exactly. basically made it kind of a little bit of a quasi dogmatic rule because uh, it's just, you know, it's plus it's more interesting creative challenge. If they can't afford a big orchestra, or you're looking for something different, then then you right. go, okay, then we won't have to worry about any of that then. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. The problem solved. And I would but, write completely differently in a situation like that than I would for, for you know, a Star Wars series. I mean, you know, if, if I know that the end product is going to be something that's all in, in my studio, then I would write to the capabilities of the tools I have yeah. rather than write to the capability of an orchestra and then try to figure out how to make it sound like an orchestra. 
you know? So, and, and I've done plenty of projects like that, you know, where, you know, the end goal is, is, is mostly sampled or maybe I sweeten it with a few things, but like, I just make sure that what I'm writing works and sounds good no matter what. Right. The end result is, you know, if the end result is supposed to be mock, like all sampled, then I need to make sure that I'm writing it. So the samples sound good. Yeah. But that wasn't the, the assignment here. So, you know, no, I knew well, that and, and, just and, placeholders just to get the point across. That assignment would have been antith- antithetical to the Star Wars sound anyway. Because it would have been. Like the, you, can't, you can't have both, you know, either write to the strength of the samples or sound like Star Wars, but the, you're never. You can't have both. And how yeah. many fucking movie trailers for have come out for the um, various movies that, that prove this point where there's totally. just this yeah. painful, very obviously sample you know, blah, 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 nah, 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 nah. and you're like, yeah. that sounds awful. Uh, and it's, yeah. this, this is a real trailer for like a major $200 million movie. Right. It's, it's wild. Uh, it is, you know, I mean, well, it just proves the point that that particular franchise calls for a certain thing. And that certain thing is a symphonic orchestra. Now, I mean, what we did with Jedi survivor is it still features a symphonic orchestra, but then we also have now added in, you know, layers and layers of, of other you know sources like with synths and you know electronics and that kind of thing you know but even then it's like the oh, goal novel to make them uh, integrated you know yeah it's oh yeah a layer it's no, it's, it's like it felt like the palette was expanding not shifting in right a sense, right uh, which i liked i really like when you land on the kind of desert planet and there's this sort of like duduk trio yeah yeah or yeah. somewhere it was like oh this it is, is actually a duduk trio <laughs> well i i i figured because i immediately called kristen nagus and i was like is this you and she was like yes uh <laughs> and uh and uh but i was like this this um this is a perfect example where it felt Star Warsy, but yet there's no Star Wars cue you could point to that's remotely like that, actually. Uh, so it was like yeah. that, that's – and I'd always hoped Star Wars could go that route, you know. Like I, I like yeah. I like um, that sort of – they've had their cage rattled a little bit in the form of things like Andor uh, uh, that have said like here's something that's just fundamentally – essentially not Star Warsy at all. Mm-hmm. And 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 you've and you've accepted it, made your piece of it. I personally really loved it, but I can Same. appreciate that I loved it while acknowledging that it's really not like Star Wars. Totally, um, and but that's it, what makes it work in a way because and, and, you know, well, especially the, for the that show, itself has uh, a different feeling. Yeah, I mean, it would never have worked on anything other than what that show was. I think, right. and 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 it would have felt. If, if you'd had a score like that in a in a Rogue One, even which is still Tony Gilroy's, you know, at the at the helm of it on some level, right? Even that wouldn't have quite worked. This was so such a rejection of the all the traditional Star Wars isms, sort of yeah. across the board. That yeah. um, that, but but as a just as part of the ecosystem, saying these are all Star Wars to give space in a sense uh, to to make less. Uh, uh, to, to make more risk averse executives who would potentially be breathing down your neck back off and let you do stuff that expands that palette. You certainly felt the dividends of that uh, being paid in Jedi survivor, which was awesome. Yeah. So that's cool. And yeah. culminating I mean, in a grand uh, Hollywood bowl, uh, LA Phil performance. That's right. Which not was too shabby. Fantastic. Pretty cool moment there getting to see that happen. You know, I mean, and what's interesting, even on, on that concert, like the, one of the main themes that we featured from our score, um, was an interesting story because, you know, it's, it, and it goes back to like, it's always about what fits for that particular project because not 
all Star Wars music will fit all Star Wars projects. And in this case, we're, we have a very different storyline. We have different characters. It's in a different time period in, in the franchise. Um, and uh, there was a need for an Imperial theme, but right. the Imperial theme from John Williams, the Imperial March, was wrong for the context that it was in. It needed to be something that was more sort of ominous and, and you know, felt like it was omnipresent, you know, sort of in the distance and, you know, mm. haunting in, in, in some strange way, um, rather than being like a march that's very insistent, like here, we're bearing down on you. This is more like it's the, the empire is always out there. And that's Cal, you know, you're sort of like kind of hiding from it. You're trying to escape right. it, but it's around every corner. So we had to kind of come up with a imperial theme that felt like it was sort of like you know worming its way through the storyline and um that is you know, an but interesting... of course it had to be memorable as well which is like another you know one of those one of my favorite buzzwords is like write a memorable theme you know because i have a firm belief that what makes a theme memorable beyond just good melody writing is repetition it's like the more you hear it it will become memorable well and also remember a theme the first time you hear it no matter what it is i agree there's very very few that that can that can achieve that and and williams has always been very good at looking for every conceivable opportunity in these films to feature those themes like like he's got a real gift and and they're made they're made you know kind of with those landing spots in his mind you know especially spielberg uh, has a tendency to kind of like create, you know, here's a 30 second window where this footage is basically in service of the theme, not the other way around. Right. Um, and, you know, you think about like Jurassic Park, the just how indulgent the arrival to the island sequence is where it, it's not really telling the story, but yet there's a belief that if we let the music stretch out, that actually will help tell the story. Totally. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a gift for collaboration that most filmmakers don't it really is don't have. And, and, you know, as, as a composer, I'm sure you've heard this many times, too, where, where people ask for where they're asking for a memorable melody, but they ask for a singable melody. Yeah, right. And I have this belief that for a melody to be strong and memorable, it does not necessarily have to be singable because I challenge anyone to to sing the entire Imperial March theme. Top yeah, bottom. right. Yeah. The, whole the B, B section, section is pretty because that B section's out there, man. It's angular. It's all over the place. Yeah, like big, even I, I cannot do it pitch for pitch, you know, like yeah. you were to put me on the spot and sing it. So I don't believe singable is, is actually what makes memorable. So I kind of almost as like a Williams, actually virtually all of his melodies um, are angular, are, like because you think of, there's so many, there's so many, um, you think of James Horner, who mm-hmm. so many of his themes then culminated in a end credit pop song version of the theme. Right. right. Everyone they're knows diatonic. Titanic, did they're easy to sing because they're diatonic or, you know. And they're, and they're relatively narrow range, although not always. I always think of his Land Before Time, the Diana Ross yeah. song that's yeah. like, it's like a freaking two octave mel- melody. But That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> but, um, um, but, uh, but generally speaking, you know, you think of – my heart will go on, and the Avatar right. one, or the Le- Mask of Zorro one, and th- 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 these these tend to be. Um, there is something about a melody that you are anticipating turning into a song that leads you down certain paths. And Williams has almost never done that. He's been involved, obviously, in some musicals and things like that. But but yep. but you think about the greats of. Every one of his most memorable themes, all the Spielberg stuff, you know, Schindler's List and 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 E.T. Yeah. and Jaws, and but then you know, 
uh, obviously the Star Wars, none of those could you possibly imagine being turned into a pop song? Even totally. like, Not or even, all. even like an aria, even, even like a operatic treatment or something. It just somehow yep. doesn't work. It just work. doesn't lend itself that way. Yeah. It's totally true. And, and because he's thinking, I mean, he's thinking very much like, you know, his intervallic, you know, relations are all based on like a, a usually relatively chromatic harmony that's happening underneath. So picking the notes out of the blue is, is not that easy, but what he's no. really good at is creating very um, recognizable and repeatable shapes in yep. his lines. And so that was sort of like when we were talking about what are we going to do for this Imperial thing, that was sort of the goal. And that was as like, not as a, a big fuck you to the, to the world that thinks that it has to be singable to be memorable, but maybe in a little way. Um, the Imperial theme, I, I made a point for it to be, it's actually like a complete chromatic 12 tone row. Yeah. So it never repeats a pitch, you know, so, but it's still very recognizable uh, because it has a shape that is very familiar and repeatable. It's actually, if you were to trace the shape of the Imperial theme from Survivor, it's actually like if you're doing a line drawing, it's, it's like a sinus, uh, sinus heartbeat rhythm. Mm. so it's always got that same repeating shape yeah and so that was sort of like the concept was like let's come up with a, a shape that people will recognize and then the pitches themselves matter a little less yeah you know? so then i can weave this thing into all kinds of directions harmonically by taking it you know melodically into new places as long as i have that anchor of this familiar shape um you know and it's then, so funny that you point that out because i've I've tried to explain this to to people a lot over the years that that Williams I thought proved that the the contour is almost the most important thing. It is. Cuz you could write yeah. a melody that goes, you know, bum ba ya hum and it's like it's feels like a variation on the Imperial March even though right. you've stretched it to something that's cartoonishly not that um, and it, it, that, 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 um, realization as whenever, you know, early twenties or late teens or whenever, when realizing like you can vary things and make it very obvious what it is. And if it's, yeah. if it's rhythmically memorable, you can even get rid of pitch entirely. Completely. Uh, yeah, you, you know? really can. Think of how many times in a Mission Rhythm Impossible movie. And contour just... are, are king. Yeah. 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 yeah, you're right. Yeah, Mission Impossible is like a great example. It's like just the, the rhythm itself. You could replace every single note. Yeah. Play I remember same rhythm and everyone's going to know it. In Mission Impossible 3, Giacchino did that. He has a big um, – he did two versions where he has a 7-8 version that's like clearly a little riff on it. But then mm -hmm. also there was just one bit of just literally like clunk, 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 clunk. And you're yep. like if – you've, if you've managed to nail that thing, um, then exactly you know. Yeah, that's a, a memorable rhythm and very catchy. And, and that's just as, uh, you know, sort of effective as, as a, a singable tune or a memorable tune. Yeah. You know, I mean, in Survivor, when, spoiler alert, when 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 Vader's on the scene, which I think we're allowed to see some spoilers, you know, I mean, even even in those cases, like like scoring those moments, like I did, I didn't want to go full on Imperial March. Right. Because Vader's there, it felt a little too on the nose, a little too obvious. And I remember thinking along these, you know, contour shape, you know, uh, sort of way of thinking. And I have in, in the corner of my studio, I have this poster of Vader, but it's just, um, it's just the silhouette yeah. of the helmet. 
And, right. I, and it's just as imposing and like frightening to catch out of the corner of your eye as like, as, as you were to see all the detail. Yeah. So to me, that was like sort of like an aha moment. It's like the shape itself is enough to remind people of what it is. So there's moments when you're fighting Vader as, as seer where I have the Imperial March melody in there, but it's, it's rather subtle because it's, it's all in like the low synth and bass. And it's just doing like, and that's it. You yeah. know, it's just that little shape. Being, I could continue it, but you know, just by outlining the shape was enough to kind of create this presence of Vader. And I didn't have to do this. That kind of thing to get that across because that would have felt, I think, almost comical in such a serious moment in the oh, game. Oh, yeah. yeah. Go, now, the game overall march, is so much know. darker. That it has a very it, serious tone. You know? Yeah, if it had felt, if, if, if you were, if you were, in, if you were like doing anything that had the risk of feeling pastiche, you would have been. Um, oh, yeah. Really, that, that uh, would not uh, have worked for this game. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, look, man, you've, it's, it's been almost two hours. You've been super generous. I do have one more technical kind of in the weeds question um, yeah. that I'm very curious that I've, I've never actually asked you about um, because, you know, one of the things um, that I very much appreciate about Steve Schnur, which, you know, we heard him say literally today, is that he's opposed to this notion of game composer as a title that right. there's just composers and some do bits of everything and some really, you know, dial in on a, on a given medium or a given form or whatever, but that there's no systemic reason why one ought be defined by certainly the industry that they find themselves working in, never mind a medium. Um, and I heartily agree. I, I, I totally, I always bristle a little bit when I get referred to as a game composer, though I love games. So I, I've come to kind of see it as, well, it could be worse. You know, it could be a medium I don't like. Um, right. <laughs> exactly. And it's like podcast composer. Actually, I love podcasts, but I would be a little disappointed <laughs> if I was podcast composer Austin Wintry um, and um, uh, or something like or like advertising. Actually, that would be the that would be right. the one. I hate sure. fucking writing. I've, oh, I, I did too. Like That's three the times That's ever and was like never again. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that would be that would be the one. Jingle Toonsmith. Yeah. Uh, so, um so that said, though, something that I think we can acknowledge is that while the notion of being a video game composer is something that you and I would both sort of reject, working on a lot of games, one comes to appreciate that there are fundamentally different things to think about than scoring to picture or writing concert music. Um, and that if you really deeply understand that, uh, you are, I think, you are just bound to have an advantage. And I haven't I haven't worked with a single developer that didn't appreciate the fact that I'm a nerd for how we're going to set it up in Wise uh, yes. and, 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 and getting deep in with the game mechanics and play testing it and, and making changes based on our play testing and all that stuff. And they, they, I, they always seem to really enjoy that. And I'm curious because th that stuff dramatically influences, at least in my case, how I go about recording because totally. I need... Yeah. I need elements to play with. So even if it sounds very traditionally orchestral, it rarely is. Yeah. Now you guys recorded, as far as I'm aware, you're still at Abbey Road recording a take number 10 million right now. Yeah, yeah we got close. Holy shit. Um, this obviously aesthetically lends itself to a tutti, 100-piece ensemble, let's go for it. But how do you reconcile that with 
the technical needs of a game and not just go and just say, okay, fuck it. We're going to do a brass. We're going to do a session of brass. We're going to do session right. string, or, or even right. more granular than that. How, where did the, cause that is a question I actually genuinely don't know the answer to. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's a really tricky thing to solve with that type of music because I mean, the, I mean, for, for the audience, I mean, the, the biggest difference between writing for film and a game or TV in a game is, is that games have no finite timeline for the music. So it has to be interactive and you have to find ways to make it interactive, you know, oftentimes with like sort of a, you know, stacking like a, a you know, vertical, you know, layering system or that kind of thing. And that, that works really well in most, scenarios but it doesn't necessarily work well for like highly symphonic music that's constantly changing tempo and meter and it's never in the same key for more than three seconds and it's just like kind of all over the place so how do you then layer that up how do you have that music exist without any one element in it not being there so you couldn't just have like for example the strings only in a star wars piece of music um, uh, you know, that then you bring the brass and then you bring the woodwinds in or whatever to like layer it up and like build up the intensity as the player progresses. That doesn't really work. So, I mean, an example is on Star Wars Squadrons, another game I scored. I had to really solve for this because it was such an interactive game. Um, well, also a pandemic. <laughs> no, that too. Yeah. But ultimately what we ended up doing is for every single piece of music that I'd write, I'd have to write three. So it wasn't that I just would write like, you know, one piece of music and then strip elements out to get down to, okay, so now the bass layer is just, you know, low strings and mm-hmm. whatever. And then the next is this, every layer of it had to have the entire orchestra involved. Otherwise it wouldn't sound like Star Wars. So I'd have to write a piece of music that was like, you know, solid, you know, in, in the style of, you know, like fit Star Wars action cue and then write another version of that exact same piece of music that using the exact same formula format. So like, you know, same tempo, same, same meters, that kind of thing. So the like superimposed right on top of it. Exactly. And then write a low key version of the same piece of music Mm. and then write an even more intense version of the same piece of music. So you'd have layer one, two, and three, and then it could easily switch between those layers, you know, but each one of those layers actually involved the full orchestra. So it was never just a, a matter of stripping things out or additive subtracted. It was like, you know, each piece was like conceived to fit right. in its particular vertical space. And so that was how we solved that. And it didn't always work. So you had to like write little transitions because you couldn't just seamlessly crossfade from one orchestral piece to another orchestral piece. I'd have to write these little transitional elements to get there so that it felt sort of natural to go from one thing to the next rather than mm. you know hearing two string sections crossfade over each other when you can actually like hear like phasing or something like that yeah right playing the same piece of music just a different orchestration of it so i mean it was a big problem to solve you know i mean with with the jedi series it's a little less um it's, it's certainly interactive but but you know like the interactive system particularly in fallen order was was um not as like so robust as like something like squadrons where it was like, because you're constantly fighting and it right. could take five minutes or it could take 30 minutes to get through this, this battle. Right. Right. You know? right. So, it, so always having to adapt to that with, uh, with Jedi is a little more because it was more story driven. We were able to say, okay, let's just write music for the sake of music. And then like that piece of music ends, let's gracefully, you know, transition into another piece that fits this environment too. So we wrote a, more music than we needed for an environment so to speak. Right. And then sort of had a pool of music to pull from 
Survivor was a bit more interactive than that. But on Survivor, we actually, because we were, quote, modernizing the sound and we wanted to kind of evolve the sound of, of what we did in Fallen Order and really push things forward, we wanted a more modern production of it. We actually did stripe everything. So we recorded, you know, all the strings and winds as one ensemble, then all the brass alone. All percussion was like recorded, you know, with this ensemble of four percussionists and we each instrument in the percussion section was recorded separately. So it had complete control over that. Oh, wow. That's a full, um, I mean, that is like the Alan Meyerson. It was the Alan Meyerson method. And granularized yeah, the hell out of this. Yeah. Totally granularized the entire thing. And, and that's what, that's really why it works the way it works. You know, I mean, it was sort of Alan's concept in a way too. He's like, we do it this way. I have the ability to do these things and really push the sound forward. And it was a, it was a good creative choice bringing Alan on board, certainly. So but even more mix, so taking uh, his advice he mixed Fallen Order as well, but we recorded that completely 2D. Um, yeah. And his suggestion from that game to the next was, we could take this further if we did this. And, and I'll be honest, I was reluctant at first because I'm like, well, it's symphonic music. It really kind of needs everyone to be in the room together so they can hear how they fit in with each other. And um, But, you know, sort of reluctantly went into it and, it and it totally worked and it still sounded great. And he was able to really kind of do new things with that and 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 actually it gave me this this ability because I was playing a lot with sort of this you know electroacoustic kind of manipulation of things mm. where I could take I could take back into my studio just the brass stem and run it through like you know some granular plugins and and kind of warp it and do these things that I'd sort of proofed out in the mock-up phase and then send that over to Alan he folds that in the mix and, and you have something completely new you know yeah, so, I, I I love doing stuff like that, um, yeah. but it's a definite line that is, is no longer that romantic capital R yeah. orchestral sound. It's just you, right. you you abandon that by definition as soon as you crack that seal, and yep. and and ninety nine percent of the time that's exactly why it's the right choice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, yeah, like because exactly. yeah. it, it's it's not a thing that is built to pay homage to that romantic orchestra the way Star Wars traditionally up to right. the had been. Exactly. And we still kind of wanted to. So that made it pretty tricky because it's like we are taking this modern approach to production, but we still want the result to feel symphonic. Right. So how do you do this and and how do you get best of both worlds? And it was, you know, so it was, it was kind of tricky. Um, the one thing we, I think typically a lot of composers might do in a situation where you're really striping and layering music is you simplify the elements quite a bit. Um, but that doesn't really work for this type of music. So it's just as rhythmically and harmonically complex as any symphonic music, um, which made it pretty tricky to record because, you know, when you're like, when you're just, you know, a wind player playing by yourself and you don't understand contextually where you're fitting into this whole, like, very strange harmonic progression, it can be kind of weird, you know, to listen to yeah. on its own. You know, it's like, so we have like making sure we're giving them context for everything they're playing. And, you know, I mean, even with like, and to make it feel more sort of cohesive and, and like a symphonic recording, even like all of the synth elements, rather than just fold them in as a layer, like everything synth in this, in that score is, um, it's almost as though the synth was just another section in the orchestra all the way to the point where like, you know, there's moments where I had written a fugue. And the synth part was actually part of the fugue, you know, so it's like it's, it's actually interacting with the orchestra, like in a conscious kind of way. Right. Like conversational. And to make it feel like it really fit in, we took all synth parts 
we did pre-recorded and then we took them to Abbey Road and we piped them into the main room through speakers and what we call reamp everything. So we recorded wow, all the mics that were for that. the orchestra through the speakers in the room. So that it felt like the sent parts were also in the room. It's actually very Goldsmith, uh, uh, very much so. uh, which is awesome. I love that. Um, yep. uh, well, look, man, uh, I I really just uh, wanted to know about Ryan versus Dorkman, uh, and so I really appreciate the uh, the overindulgence uh, on the rest. Um, this course, was worth man. it just alone to know that your uh, mentor was possibly the Whiplash inspiration. So, um, uh, totally bad. Yeah, I, I I really I can't thank you enough. I've been excited um, to 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 do this, and I remember first. Um, bringing it up with you like a seemingly two or more years ago. And then, and then it was like, you were, you had already started on, on, um, fallen order or uh, Jedi survivor. And it was like, this is worth waiting until, uh, after that. So we can fold it into the conversation because it, you know, the thing is I always knew at some point it's silly to wait because I'm sure there's stuff on the table right now. That would be, would like, you know, would be like, damn, I would have loved to have been able to incorporate that into the conversation. But, um, that's the, that's the, uh, the luxurious problem of, of, uh, being an in-demand composer working on cool shit. Yeah, exactly, man. So no, but I'm glad we did this. It's super cool. And I'm, and in in a way I'm glad we waited because there's some really cool stuff to talk about in Survivor in particular. I mean, that was like, you know, sort of revolutionizing my process in a lot of ways. So it's, it's fun to kind of explore that and, and actually talk it out, you know, and you can, my, feel, you, know. you can feel that it's, um, that, um, there's this, again, in, I, I, in this wonderfully validating rebuttal of that stupid and, and sort of, uh, short sighted conclusion I drew a decade ago. What I love is that through these star Wars games in particular, I've really felt you kind of incrementally finding ways to build more of yourself into them. Yeah. And, and, exactly. and, and it's, it's, it's very cool. It's very cool to see. Cause in so many ways, what I love is that that actually beautifully parallels Williams himself, where you, yeah. you see that in his career that, that there's a real, like certain things, especially go back to the beginning where it's a very, it's very like Mancini derivative Right, it's exactly. excessively more and more, and by the time you, if you, if you were to follow even just that thread, "Catch Me If You Can" does not sound anything like something Mancini wrote. But it, right, exactly. he started, he started there, and then he just evolved as all as all human beings do. And and exactly, you've paralleled in that in your own way so nicely. That's cool. That's cool to hear, and that's always been my goal: is sort of to constantly evolve my music, but also evolve my own thought process on you know on how music works and you know like like all of us artists you know it, it's it's a lifetime of learning and 100 you know when you stop growing you stop learning you stop evolving yourself then that's that's when you get passed up you know so i'm always trying to recreate my own process and thinking so it's been fun it. getting to do that on one of my favorite franchises of all time you know, it's kind of a nice power well, to have. And, and you've held it, uh, you've held it aloft, uh, better than anybody. So, um, Thanks, um, uh, uh, but with that said, uh, I think I suspect both of us, uh, need to get back to work. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Most likely so. um, thanks again, man, for doing this. Really, really yeah, appreciate pleasure. it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. 
Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash aoiaas.